Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Though he died in 1969, the founder of the Bauhaus, Walter Grofius, was whom finally set me on a professional path in architecture. Growing up in Wisconsin, Frank Lloyd Wright had been, by default, an iconic, although nebulously motivating, presence. Though we intend to devote more time to Wright later on, in the broad scope of our timeline, we will leave him in Taliesin, silently studying a topographical map of rural Pennsylvania. It was in my freshman year of high school that a teacher handed me a delightful Salonier's encyclopedia of sorts called an incomplete education. It was intended for me to read the entries on Shakespeare, which I did, but I quickly flipped over to the chapter on architecture. The typical cursory overview of column and facade from classical to Gothic preceded the main body. This covered 20th century design, in those days still almost justifiably styled modern architecture. Only two people in the entire sweep of architectural history were deemed important enough to merit portraits in this book, Wright and Grofius, whose section began, To be perfectly frank, Walter Grofius was not really such a hot designer. He was, however, the presiding genius of the Bauhaus. Who the hell are these people to say that, I thought and there went a few thousand hours of my life. That this too self-aware tome felt the need to scoff at Grotheus is in some sense fitting. He had, after all, wished for his school to be the antithesis of an ivy-ringed academy where obligatory diagrams of the Baroque house served as window dressing for the main course of networking and learning how to originally emulate famous ideas. Above all things, the Bauhaus was an institution for the unity and integration of design and building. A symptom of industrial degradation was that goods which had been designed or sometimes even realized by a single individual were in their production, suddenly split into two worlds. In the late 19th century, a retiring nobleman's villa near the hobby farm could have been readily executed under the auspices of a single master builder, who would consider him a patron. By the 1920s, that nobleman's grandson, who might commission a townhouse near his office, would have been required to employ an architect and an engineer, not to mention this client, no longer a patron, would have had to trust those two to agree on a general contractor. And then, he would have to trust the contractor too. Within the same grandparent-to-grandchild time span, visits to the local tallow maker or whale oil salesman were replaced by delivery from a kerosene distributor. A few years later came a neighborhood gas system, soon to be made municipal, 
Next, the whole gas factory would be replaced by an electric grid, which itself required special light bulbs, one bought from a different company entirely. And teetering above all this were the Werkbunds Peter Behrens and his interns, Grofius, Mies, and soon to be called Corbusier, working like mad on the Allgemeine Elektrische Gesellschaft, German GE, projects. AEG's research and development would be putting customers' Reichsmarks to work on upgrading what they had just sold with new and better bulbs while the designers desperately tried to tie all of this up in a coherent AEG experience with a new logo, improved factories, and striving after everything about that high philosophy of form we spoke of earlier. Needless to say, it was a mess. Though, how many of us have had the rare honor of confronting a problem whose type has never existed? If this trend of increasingly specialized complexity continued for just another half-generation, God help us all. Often, conflicting incentives with which we are very familiar today were becoming newly apparent and had to be dealt with for the first time. Loos had noted how, in government buildings, plumbing, which engineers and contractors would have thought was more important than facades, had to compete in budget allocations. If a politician in league with an architect wanted a facade to impress the public more than they wanted the toilets to work, that's where the money went. At the other end of the spectrum, the vastly growing drive to sell via catalog brought in waves of low-cost emulation. Where the wooden legs of an imitation Louis Kahn's chair might, for example, be given a gold finish in quickly tarnishing bronze, time and money spent on making cheap stuff look expensive or new things look old could not be applied to solving problems, of which there were plenty. For a relatively short time, team firms of engineer-architect such as Adler and Sullivan, or project manager-designer combos as with Burnham and Root, held the fort somewhat on the old unified model of design production. But as time went on, the pressures of specialization only heightened, and if these were not held in check, people like Grofius only expected the ridiculous and perverse symptoms to increase to terminal proportions. The urgent operative question became, so what are we going to do about it? To drop out was one answer. Ditch the system and create a new space, distinct from this complacent discharge of bourgeois ambition. This was the reaction of the avant-garde, the preferred escape route of left-bank romantics, Russian nihilists, worldwide bohemians, and, soon enough, of Berlin and Paris Dada. Historian Eugen Weber described this new concept of new as one where, the virtue is not so much in what you do, but in being ahead of what others do. A new conformism whose chief characteristic is that it tries to avoid conformity. 
Another option was the line Matasius towed, rather than to be so naive as to jettison or buy off the system and tell it to leave you alone. One should be so stubborn as to believe that the system can be fixed with art and philosophy, deftly wielded by properly trained experts. But a third way existed, and was indeed dominant. It was sadly that of self-interested apathy or detached acceptance by a rising middle class who mouthed and repeated the message that there was no problem at all. In the world of art and design, solution by engagement faced off against solution by disengagement, respectively yearning for influence upon or distance from the great public. Sometimes these conflicts would surge within the same institution, or at times even the same individual. In describing the stance of the Bauhaus towards the tendencies and challenges of industrialization, William Smock writes in The Bauhaus Ideal that, instead of simply being horrified by it, Bauhaus designers wanted to master the industrializing trend that produce factory towns like Pittsburgh and Manchester and the lethal technologies of World War I. They wanted to make work meaningful, products beautiful, and everyday life healthy and invigorating. They were very conscious of being in the avant-garde. This heady mix was brought to a ferment in Weimar, a city with a centuries-long tradition of what we might today call hippies getting paid to be creative by local elites while living amongst a majority that would never dream to rock the boat and shielded children's eyes when an artist walked by. The Bauhaus would be located in three cities during its 14-year chartered existence. Some historians argue the count is four if one considers the attempts to set up a court in exile at Chicago's Armour Institute, and later with UIC after the Gestapo shut down the Berlin locale in 1933. As we said in our previous episode, the Bauhaus began life as the Weimar Saxon Grand Ducal Art School, chaired by Vandevelde and sponsored by our noble friend Wilhelm Ernst Karl Alexander, etc., etc., etc. As a direct result of the war, Vandevelde ceded directorship to Grotius in 1914. As for Wilhelm Ernst, following the German Revolution in 1918, Local executive power was removed from him and transferred to an elected body. On a national scale, the last echoes of German feudal order had stepped aside to make way for a new democracy. The nation's capital remained in Berlin, but due to civil unrest, the new German constitution was hastily drafted in this small city that had lent its name to the Weimar Republic. The art school was officially rechristened on April 12, 1919. Though we have so far endeavored to show some of the roots of modernist design leading back into the 19th century, the Bauhaus's founding 
was a time of efflorescence. The forthcoming manifesto of the new school bore the image of a soaringly angular cathedral and proclaimed, The mere drawing and painting world of the pattern designer and the applied artist must become a world that builds again. It was announcing a triumphal re-entry of the conceptual into the physical, manifesting the ideological common ground that even Mathesius and Van de Velde had shared. Das Bauhaus is somewhat of a neologism that translates as a house of building or of construction. It has a nicely recursive ring to it that may have been intentional or at least appreciated at the time. Though the art school had once been a single structure, it had now become the building for the building of buildings. The curriculum that Grotheus developed was organized into an iconic diagram that we have posted on our website. If you have not seen it before, or looked at it recently, though, I suggest visualizing it as we describe it here, so as to turn it into a showpiece for your own Holmesian memory palace, or Ark of St. Victor for purists. The curriculum for the Building of Buildings House School is a circle, made of three concentric rings with one disc in the center. If you took a large coin and glued a smaller coin on top of it, then glued an even smaller coin on top of that, and next drilled a hole half the size of the smallest coin dead center in the assembly, looking at that from above would neatly approximate this basic, almost Dantean geometry. The circular portal in the middle is like the central heavenly endpoint of a medieval church floor maze. The student matriculated through a three-and-a-half-year program that began outside the circle and moved progressively into the center, in what was, to all intents and purposes, a true initiation. The forecourse, or basic course, studying materials and workmanship, lasted a half-year and formed the entire periphery. The next ring consisted of five segments. Progressing clockwise, entering at a conceptual twelve o'clock as on a clock face, the wandering student moved through studies of nature from twelve to two, materials from two to five, space down into color and composition at five to seven, construction and representation from seven to ten, and up to materials and tools from ten back to twelve. This annual circuit complete, the students stepped one level deeper to the center of the ecliptic. This innermost ring represented two years and was divided into seven segments, where studies were to be made as indicated again written clockwise in wood, metal, textiles, color, glass, clay, and stone. 
If these three levels were passed after the approved work and strict examination, the final degree would be conferred. The central goal is labeled building, and this end is a new beginning with the chart showing the practice-based categories of site, testing, design, and building and engineering science as fundamentals within the ultimate and central category of building. In a model like this, and maybe in life, the recursion is endless, since practice itself contains new lessons and has its own cycles of study, testing, and execution. Stay tuned as we examine some of these facts on the ground and look into the life of Walter Grofius. Next week on Lapsus Lima.